beautiful. Father, we thank you for the power of your word and for the power of the message. This message changed the world forever. And we're delighted that we can share it throughout this week and this coming weekend. And for those who come from all walks of life, many who never come to church other than a special season like this, may this be the weekend, this coming weekend as well, where they realize and recognize that everything they've been looking for in life and then some is in you. And so we trust that you'll meet in a variety of ways throughout these next seven days together. In Jesus' name, amen. If someone were to come to you and tell you in July or August that they had purchased for you the most amazing Christmas gift you had ever seen, and then every single month for those next four or five months, month after month after month, they came to you and said, you are not going to believe what I'm going to give you this Christmas. How would you feel? I mean, a lot of us, or most of us in the room, love getting gifts right? How many of you have all your shopping done? I'm impressed, six of you. The malls are dying for you to come this week then, evidently. There's so much anticipation that goes with this particular time of year. And if someone were really to do that for you and saying to you, I bought you the most amazing gift you've ever seen in your life. You've never had anything like it. You'll never get anything like it again. And then month after month after month, they began to tell you about that gift. I've got to imagine there would be a sense of expectation and anticipation toward Christmas. I have a hard time sleeping at 58 years old on Christmas Eve. It was an amazing journey when you went from your girls waking you up at 5.30 in the morning to you having to wake them up to open their Christmas gifts. Any of you gone through that transition yet? That's an amazing transition. When your kids are in your room at 5 o'clock in the morning on Christmas Eve and you didn't get to bed till 3 because you're putting something together and they're standing there saying, is it time to get up? Is it time to get up? Is it time to get up? You're not ready to get up. And then all of a sudden as they get teenagers, you go through that transition where you're waking them up. You're going, honey, it's 9.30. Should we wake them up or not? I love the answer, no. <laughs> what about on the other side of life? If your life was falling apart, things weren't going as anticipated, you didn't know if you could handle the next set of circumstances in your life, let alone the ones you're dealing with at this particular point, and someone came to you and said, if you could hold on for just a little while, I guarantee you an answer will come. It may have not been what you expected or the way you wanted it to go, but if you'll just hold on for a little bit, I guarantee you things will change in an amazing way. Now, both of those emotions, the excitement and the joy of anticipation of something you've never received before and will never get again, or that deep down in your soul feeling like, like if something doesn't turn around, I'm not sure if I'm going to make it the rest of the week or the rest of the day. Both of those aspects of emotions go in to the events that are unfolded all the way through Scripture. That amazing exhilaration of anticipation of something that's going to change the world, will change my life forever, and that deep down in your soul sense, like, when it comes, I really believe it's what I've been looking for. Both aspects of that kind of emotion are what Scripture points to. There's no way on any 
Sunday morning that I could take you through all the Old Testament, but from Genesis to the end of the Old Testament, chapter after chapter or book after book, there's these promises of the coming Messiah. They had literally waited for centuries. I mean, it's one thing to wait for a while or for a week or for a month or for a half a year or a year or so. They had waited for centuries for this promise to be fulfilled. From the beginning of Genesis in the fall, as we said last Sunday morning, to the end of the Old Testament, century after century after century, the Messiah is coming. This is what it'll be like. This is where he'll be born. This is what's going to happen to him century after century. And many of them really did believe and knew deep down in their soul that he would be the answer to their life. And others knew if they didn't have this answer, their life held no meaning. All looked forward to the event that we have celebrated, probably many of us in this room, hundreds of times over and over again, depending on how many services you go to. And for them, that sense of excitement and anticipation and fulfillment had to be overwhelming. And then all of a sudden, at that amazing moment in time, Galatians says, God parted heaven. Galatians 4.4 is such a simple verse. It says, and in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. But I've often wondered, what must it have been like in heaven as they have waited over and over and over again through all of these centuries, hearing all of these cries, that desperate anticipation for the Savior to come. What must it have been like in heaven when all of a sudden today is the day, now is the time, and heavens gets parted and God sends forth his Son? I know what I feel. I love Christmas. I can't even imagine what it must have been like for all of those centuries to have waited for that one moment in time when God would send his son. And he came. The wait was over. That long-awaited Redeemer promised all the way back in the Garden of Eden, foretold by the prophets, had finally arrived. And there he is, a baby in a manger, in a little town called Bethlehem, Born to a teenage girl, engaged to a carpenter. I mean, the story couldn't get any simpler than that. In a manger, in a know-nothing town at that point, called Bethlehem, to a teenager that no one knew, to a carpenter that many would never remember. And it came. I love Luke's portrait of it, and we'll share it on Saturday night. I love the portrait that Luke paints. And all of us on a mantle somewhere or somewhere in our home have this nativity set and the beautiful characters all around it and the sheep and the shepherds and the baby in a manger and Joseph and Mary diligently looking down at that child. I love that portrait. But this morning I just want to remind you that this is more than an event about a baby in a manger. See, every once in a while, if we're not careful, there's a tendency to, at Christmas time to see the baby in a manger and somehow, if we're not careful, diminish who he was. On a number of occasions, Jesus said of himself, I and the Father are one. That's an amazing statement. I mean, it's one thing to say my kids like me or are like me. In, in my case, my two girls have picked up all of my bad traits Every single one of them. 
And every once in a while, Eric will just shake his head and say, I cannot believe that I married someone like you. (laughs) When I so hoped I would marry someone like Connie. And it's one thing to say that she imitates my quirks and my problems and my issues. You know, I just now thought of this. If both of us went to therapy at the same time, it would resolve a lot of issues probably. (laughs) It's one thing to say they inherited my traits or they look like me. I love the fact that all of our grandchildren are adopted and every so often I'll say to somebody, doesn't he look just like me? (laughs) And they'll go, it's amazing. They don't know. But it's another thing for Jesus to say, I and the Father are one. Me and God. Over and over again, all the way through the New Testament, he kept saying that. I and the Father are one. He possessed all the attributes of God. He had power over nature. He had power over physical disease. He had power over demonic forces. He had power over death. He knew all the thoughts of humanity. I love that statement in Scripture when it says he knew what they were, think- they were thinking. That to me would be one of the most scariest moments in time. That anyone would know what we were thinking, let alone what we said. And over and over again, Jesus said, I, I know what's in your heart. John 1 says that he is the creator. Hebrews 1 said he's the sustainer of the universe. Colossians says, in him all the fullness of the Godhead dwells. Yet Philippians 2 says, he laid it all aside to take on the form of a human. Creator, the sustainer of the universe, in him all the fullness of the Godhead dwells. Yet he laid it all aside to come and rescue us and save us from our sin. Luke 2.52 said he grew up as a normal child, physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. He got hungry and thirsty. His feet ached. He needed sleep. He experienced love and compassion, anger and sorrow. Over 80 times in the Gospels alone, he called himself the Son of Man, yet he retained his divinity and could do all the things that I said a moment ago. And I find myself every once in a while saying, why would you do that? Knowing what you knew and knowing who you were and knowing who you are. Why would you do that? Why would you lay all of that aside for me? There are a number of reasons, I'm sure, this morning. I want to share with you just three. I think one of the reasons that Jesus laid all of that aside and did what he did and came to us as a baby in Bethlehem, but a man on the streets of Jerusalem and the shores of Galilee, to reveal to us what God was like. So often, and I still hear it today every once in a while, I just wish I knew what God was thinking. I just wish I knew what God was like. I, I, I don't understand the Old Testament. I don't understand that aspect of God. And what I'll just simply say to them is, take an opportunity today, tomorrow, for the rest of the week, walk through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I'm telling you, you will see exactly what God was like. John 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made. In him was life. And that life was the light of mankind. And that word that was in the beginning that was with God that was God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Verse 14 tells us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. 
Through Jesus, we can see God's love. We see God's compassion. We have an opportunity through Christ to see the world through God's eyes and understand how to respond to that world. Max Licato, who's one of my favorite authors, says it this way, the word became flesh. In other words, he was touchable, approachable, reachable. And what's more, he was ordinary. If he were here today, you wouldn't even notice him if he walked through the shopping mall. He wouldn't turn heads by the clothes that he wore or the jewelry that he flashed. Just call me Jesus, he would probably say. You can almost hear him say that. You know that you'd feel very comfortable inviting him to your home. And when you spoke, he'd listen to you as if he had all the time in eternity. And one thing for sure, you'd invite him back. You see, it's worth noting that those who knew him best just remembered him as Jesus. The titles Jesus Christ and Lord Jesus are only seen six times in the New Testament. Those who walked with him remembered him not with a title or a designation, but with a name, simple name. That hundreds of other little boys in all of Bethlehem and Jerusalem had. The name Jesus. Think about the implications of that. When God chose to reveal himself to humanity, what medium did he choose? A, a book, a church, a moral code? To limit God's revelation to a cold list of do's and don'ts is as tragic as looking at a Colorado road map and saying that you've seen the Rockies. It doesn't even compare. When God chose to reveal himself, he did it through a human body. The tongue that called forth the dead was a human one. The hand that touched the leper had dirt under its nails. The feet upon the which the women wept were calloused and dusty. And the tears, they came from a heart that was just as broken as yours and mine can be. And people came to him. They came to him from all walks of life. They came to him at night. They touched him as he walked down the street. They followed him around the sea. They invited him into their homes. They placed their children at his feet. Why? Because he refused to be a statue in a cathedral or a priest in an elevated pulpit. He just chose to be called Jesus. Not one hint of one person who was ever afraid to come near him. There were those who mocked him. There were those who were envious of him. There were many who misunderstood him. There were hundreds who revered him. But there was not one person who considered him too holy or too divine to touch. Not one person who was reluctant to approach him for fear of being rejected. Remember that the next time you find yourself amazed at your own failures or the next time accusations burn a hole in your soul or the next time you see a cold cathedral. Remember, it was man who created the distance. It was Jesus who built the bridge. The next time you feel like you can't understand what God is doing or you just wish you had a glimpse into heaven to find out what goes on behind the mind of God or how he operates or functions or what he feels. All I ask you to do is go back to John or Luke or Matthew and Mark and recognize that God revealed himself in hundreds of ways through Jesus. More than a baby in a manger. He came to show us what God was like. To show us God's love, God's compassion, God's tenderness, God's mercy, God's forgiveness, and God's amazing grace. He also came to be the demanded sacrifice, to ransom us back. 
Satan had us in the grip of our sin. You know that and I know that. No matter how hard we try to get out of our sin, no matter how hard we try to get away from our sin, if we try to do it on our own, we find ourselves getting pulled back in further and further. We try for a little while, we seem to be doing okay, and then all of a sudden, if you're doing all this without Christ, you find yourself pulled right back into that same issue, that same thought pattern, that same struggle, that same situation. And no matter how hard you try, no matter what you try to do, you can't seem to get out of that. And then you realize, if somebody were to explain Scripture to you, that the sin is so devastating in the eyes of God that it costs the ultimate sacrifice and As a matter of fact, that ultimate sacrifice would be your own death. Because if you ever have plans of going to heaven when you die, and who doesn't, you just need to know God is holy and you and I aren't. And the only way to get there is to be holy, and we can't. And we can't even buy ourselves back. We can't even pay our own way in. I see people try all the time. I were to ask them, if you were to die tonight and go to heaven, why would God let you in? Well, I went to church, I tithed, I, I was an usher, I was a Sunday school teacher, and I didn't hurt anyone, anybody. I kept most of the Ten Commandments. Six out of ten's right, okay. And the problem with that is that it all pales in comparison to God's holiness. And no matter how hard we try, we can't break that grip of sin, and no matter how hard we try, we can't pay the price of sin. It's too high, it's too steep. There's no way we could do it. What fascinates me is Jesus said, I'll pay it for you. I mean, it's one thing to walk into somebody's line every once in a while <coughs> at a checkout line and say, I, I love, just as a, one of those unusual moments in time, can I pay for your bill or can I help you out or, or one of those kind of things or it's, if somebody's bailed in, or in jail and needs bailed out and you offer to help them through the process or someone needs counseling and you offer to pay for it and then, then the list gets larger and larger and larger of things you try to do to maybe help somebody out. It's still unbelievable to imagine that anyone would do that for us. They would pay the ultimate price so that we could be free of all the sin that keeps dragging us down. That Jesus came more than a baby in a manger to buy us back, to pay the ransom price, the price that God demanded for our sin, even being the only one qualified to do it and to rescue us. The other reason that he came is given to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, which to me is one of the forgotten men of Christmas. There's three or four people that are the forgotten people of Christmas, and Joseph seems to be one of those. Matthew 1 tells us this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be pregnant with the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law. He didn't want to expose her to public disgrace. He had a mind to divorce her privately or quietly. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because that that is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. He will give him a son and you were to give him the name Jesus. Because he will save his people from their sin. You are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. We live in a fallen, broken world that has absolutely no hope without Christ. Got an email this week from some friends of ours who are missionaries in Europe. 
They talked about the fact that this particular week they were robbed again for the third time. Someone had broken into their vehicle and took all of their stuff out, GPS and papers and all of those issues, and then talked about the other incidents in their life where they had had that happen to them. And then at the end of their email, they quoted a verse that is probably familiar to many of us out of Job that says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. I love their amazing attitude. I don't agree with their theology. I don't think the Lord took those things away. We live in a fallen, broken world. And without Jesus, it has no hope. Our grandson is in the hospital again. And we have our other grandson because Aaron needed a break. And so our world got turned upside down a little bit this week. We didn't expect to have a five and a half month old in our house for these last few days. And somebody said to me yesterday, is it indefinite? I said, I hope not. <laughs> On Thursday night, when I talked to Erin, she was going to the hospital and she said, Eric had a meeting that he can't get out of. And I could hear it in her voice. I said, I'm going to get down. And all the way down, I'm nervous because Erin is like her dad. She falls apart at those incidences. And Eric is like the rock who doesn't get uptight about anything. Who the week before happened to tell me all the stories of little children with this condition who had died and passed away, and I'm going, I didn't need to know that. And so all the way down, I'm anxious, and the moments are racing through my heart. And I'm fearing the worst and expecting the worst, and it's my grandson, and it's their child, and all of that. And then it happened to be that their room was one of the last ones in the emergency room in Children's Hospital in Pittsburgh. And you walk by room after room after room after room after room. And all of a sudden, your situation doesn't look near as bad. One of the most difficult things for me to do in ministry is to go to the children's hospital, especially NICU or pediatric, pediatric intensive care. And you walk by room after room after room after room of kids that have been wired up for weeks and months with leukemia, with all kinds of conditions and issues, that they'll never recover from outside of God. And all of a sudden, I recognize, again, we live in a fallen, broken world. If you go in any emergency room in Pittsburgh, especially that particular one, it wasn't just kids that were in there. It was people from all walks of life with all kinds of problems and all kinds of issues, and I can't even imagine what it must be like to be an ER doctor or an ER nurse in those kinds of situations. But when I looked around the room and I just walked up and down the hall, and saw circumstance after circumstance, all I kept thinking in my mind is this message, we live in a fallen, broken, hurting world. Day before yesterday, I received a message, email from a missionary friend who has someone in her church who was accused of something in Cambodia that just simply political corruption out the years, and she's in jail, and they have no idea whether she'll ever get out, accused of something she never did. But more than anything else, she wants her children to not get bitter, to turn their backs on God. She wants them to come to faith in Christ. I was stunned by her faith. Disappointed sometimes in my own. And all I kept saying is we live in a fallen, broken, hurting world. With only one answer, it's Jesus. Who came to be more than a baby in a Bethlehem. To be more than a baby in a manger but to show us what God was like, to show us his love and his tenderness and his grace and his compassion, 
to pay the price that we couldn't pay and to redeem us or rescue us from our sins. To save his people, all of humanity, who would come to him from their sin. This week and next weekend, we will celebrate one of the greatest days in the history of humanity. I just hope we never forget what he actually came to do, who he is and what he offers, because it can change your life forever. Let's pray. Father, there are people all over this room this morning who have gone through difficult circumstances who are going through them now who wants to know some answers or would love some help, just needs some encouragement, a kind word, an answer of some kind. And I, I ask in the name of Jesus that right now by your amazing grace, you would reach down in this room. They're all over this audience. I love this time of year, excited about it, but it's different this year for some in this room. They're living a nightmare. They're living in ways they wouldn't have anticipated. They're going through circumstances they don't see any end for financial, emotional, marital, relational, and I just ask right now in the name of Jesus that you would rescue them. We have a Jesus who saves, who rescues and redeems and buys us back and offers us everything we could ever need and then some. And I trust that in these quiet closing moments, Father, you will hear their cry. For that one who isn't even certain about their future eternity, I trust that today is the day they recognize that they too can be absolutely certain about their relationship with you. And I trust that you will speak and they will hear and you will listen to their cry as they reach out to receive you as Savior. Confess their sins and to recognize that you're the only hope and to recognize that you came to rescue us and redeem us and to set us free. Today is the day of salvation for all who hear and all who receive, who find everything they need in Christ. Thank you that we know that for sure. And we can offer that every single time we gather together. Because the truth is the truth of Scripture, and that truth can set us free. So for many in this audience this morning, Father, would you set them free? In the name of Jesus, we pray.